0: Your website is the front door of your business, but the way teams build and optimize is broken. Stuck between inflexible templates and cumbersome code-dependent solutions, there's a better, faster way. Enter Webflow, a visual-first platform that empowers you to create freely. Now you can ship web pages in weeks instead of months and save millions in development costs. These are the real results for companies like Orange Theory, Dropbox and Ideo. Get started today at webflow.com. Webflow, more than a website builder. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today I'm talking with Emily Culp, who is the president of Cover FX Skincare and also the former CMO of Keds. Emily, hi and welcome to the show. Hi, Nadine, and thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Oh my gosh. I'm honored that you're here too, because uh, you have such an amazing journey to share with us and the move that you made from CMO to president already in and of itself. I can't wait to dig into that. Um, But before we jump into anything, why don't you start by sharing with us a little bit about your current role and why you decided to take that
1: on? meeting, what was important to me was to find a brand that I was really emotionally connected to and that I believed in. When you think about this brand, CoverFX has been around for about 19 years and it's a vegan, cruelty-free makeup brand that stands for custom coverage. What that means is it's the concept around letting every woman or man be able to fully customize their best face What that means is it's this idea around really celebrating all different types of skin and beauty, which we affectionately dub skin inclusivity. And why this spoke to me so much, on a personal note, about a year ago, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, which is celiac. And what that turned into was a fascinating journey for me to learn everything about what I put inside my body. But if you can imagine... You also start to examine what you put on your body. And the more research I did, the more I found there are very few brands that are high performance and deliver and cover effects was one of them. So that's why I started to fall in love with the brand. And I would say the icing on the story was meeting the founders and hearing the story about why they discovered this amazing brand and built this business.
0: Okay. So let's come back to the fact that you were the CMO of kids and then you took this new role on as president. I want to dig in a little bit more at some point, not right this second. I'm going to tease it out because we're going to talk about what the difference between the CMO role is and the president role. But let's talk about how you got there because that was a very interesting story that you shared with me.
1: I feel extremely fortunate. I worked very hard to create the opportunity at to become a global CMO and I oversaw all omni-channel aspects. So not only from a traditional marketing perspective, but also the P&L associated with e-commerce. So that set me up in a very positive way in terms of financial acumen and during this time, I also had been thinking increasingly, how else could I challenge and grow myself professionally and personally? One of the areas that I felt would be a good stretch goal for me would be to join a board. And in particular, I had a very clear idea of what type of board I was interested in joining. I wanted to join a board that was actually not public, but was private. So either privately held or held by a private equity firms. So I could learn that aspect of business. I also was interested in working with a board that would value my contribution, have board members that I could learn from and also contribute to. And then finally, one of the most important things to me, as is I think most CMOs or presidents, is I have to feel extremely passionate about the product and the business opportunity. And I was fortunate enough after about six or seven years of looking in the marketplace and meeting lots of great founders and different companies along the way to be approached by Elle Catterton about an opportunity to work on one of their brands, which is called Mizzen & Maine. And Michigan and Maine is in the men's category, which was also something that I was extremely passionate about learning more of because up until that point, I had been predominantly focused for the past 20 years of my career around the female consumer. So I thought this could also be a great way for me to grow and expand my horizons. Wow. Okay. So we were talking a lot
0: about the roles and responsibilities of being on a board And can you talk a little bit more about what you've learned as you went through this process
1: of selecting to be on that board? Yes, I think one of the most important things, I feel that when you're looking to join the board, similar to when you're looking to join the company full-time, it's the same level of commitment, if not even greater. What I mean by that is during an interview process, one of the first things you're looking at is, is there chemistry? If it's with the founder, investors, fellow board members, et cetera. Then the next part that you want to know about joining a board in particular is how well is it funded? Is it poised for growth? And then, frankly, one of the most fascinating things to understand too when you join a board is really being clear on expectations in a few different ways. Usually there are quarterly board meetings and also being accessible to the CEO or fellow board members especially around peak deal times or situations arise within a business that you can't predict. And the other piece is truly comprehending the fiduciary responsibility that you have not only to the company, but the shareholders. And with that, understanding all of the different aspects down to board member insurance, it's really being very fluent in everything that it takes to be a successful and highly functioning board member.
0: So... When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that because of your role in serving on the board, it actually gave you the opportunity to be in your new role as president of Cover FX Skincare. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. One of the points of being on the board was I had the opportunity to get to know L. Catterton members. And when I wanted to move back to the New York City area, I eligible for some of the opportunities of different companies within their portfolio. And one of them happened to be cover effects. So I am extremely grateful for having a chance to work with them in a board capacity for almost a year prior to joining in a leadership role capacity at cover effects. But I wouldn't have had this opportunity to move from a CMO to a president without that level of exposure and development. Okay. so,
0: so, Clearly, being part of a board was instrumental in this new opportunity. Do you think that being on the board and preparing and that research that you did for six years to find the right fit for you as a board member prepared you to be a president from your CMO role? Or, or how did you go about taking that leap, if you will, that move?
1: When you think about CMO, some of the most important skills that I've honed leading up to that were thinking through thoroughly. How do you set the proper KPIs for any long-term or short-term strategy? How do you calculate ROAS? Also have a global lens. And all of those different experiences and building world-class teams poise you in many ways to be a successful president. What I will say, being new to the president role, about four or five months at this point, An area I continue to work on is exposing myself and increasing my fluency in financial reporting and analysis. That's absolutely critical to the role. Another part that I find myself focusing on is driving purposeful action. And what I mean by that is oscillating between the short term that you deal with almost on a day-to-day basis and balancing that out with the long-term strategic plan that you need to deliver and to drive that long-term growth and that you're accountable to your board and ultimately to your shareholders. And then finally, I would say one of the most fascinating moments for me in being a president is it's really no longer about participating the most. It's actually being the most thoughtful and asking the right questions to get at more information, so you can make informed decisions in a timely manner.
0: Ooh, I love that. You you had me thinking there about Denise Carcos. Actually, going back a whole year now, when I was chatting with Denise, and she's the CMO of TD Ameritrade, she was talking about the difference between being smart and being strategic, and strategic capacity is the ability to ask questions, the right questions, if you will. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And it's such an important point. You also brought up something earlier too, which I was was really impressed by. And you were talking about how you not only build your own acumen, but you're really looking around at your team members and putting them in scenarios to help them be more successful with some really creative tactics. And one of the examples you gave me was around their performance objectives. Can you talk a little bit about
1: that? I think one of the most important things in terms of leadership beyond vision, and of course being financially rigorous, the outcome is people and leadership and building amazing high-performing teams. And one of the ways that I have been able to build success is by having extremely smart, dedicated, crazy curious people work with me. And I affectionately call them purple squirrels. And these <laughs> are people, yeah, I really do mean it, a purple squirrel. And to give you an idea, and I'm going to get into also how I bonus them uniquely, is a purple squirrel is someone who really has that unbelievable, uncanny ability to balance both qual and quant skills. So what I mean is taking this at a very tactical level. Imagine your social media manager who has an amazing inherent eye, so is capturing the perfect imagery and content, but then in two seconds later can sit there with you with a dashboard and understand the metrics, the response, and how to optimize going forward. That's a very unique type of skill, hence the purple squirrel. And what I find is if I build a team of purple squirrels, they tend to be very, very curious. They are hardwired to win and they're open to learning new and different things. And what that may mean is, for example, a purple scroll in PR, I can say to them, one of your KPIs for this year is growing the email database, which for many people is a moment of pause. But what that does is it has them pivot and understand in a very real manner that they're part of an omni-channel team. And then in a reverse way, the email marketing manager needs to drive short and long term edit leads. And it's not that they're physically doing each other's jobs. It's more the fact that they realize they need to work together to win and around that premise of all boats rise. And that's how, in my mind, you unlock this exponential growth where everybody wins.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. Okay, so I'm, I'm, still, I'm still stuck on the purple squirrel. Like, how did you come up with the phrase <laughs> purple squirrel? Are you, has, has everybody been using this and I don't even
1: know about this t- term yet? Um, no, I try and teach one semester at Columbia in one of the marketing classes. And I've said it forever that I truly believe to get the best talent, you have to think about different types of talent. And I've always thought of them as purple squirrels. So I actually have a slide with a purple squirrel that I'll share with you in the future.
0: Oh my gosh, that's cool. I'm actually thinking of calling your podcast, How to Build a Team as Purple Squirrels. Um, yeah,
1: no, I really love purple squirrels. I okay. truly, <laughs> truly, I do. And it's not that I love the animal, but I love, if you could see me now, I'm smiling. Because <laughs> when you find them and nurture them and create an environment where they can thrive, it's not only the success from a business perspective, but personally, it's phenomenal. Wow. Okay. Well, I know what to buy you for
0: Christmas. Um, <laughs> so uh, th- thanks for giving me an idea there, but let's, let, okay. So let's talk in all seriousness about these purple squirrels then, because sure. let's tie it back to what we were talking about earlier. You were talking about growing your financial acumen and always being responsible for the numbers. And I, I think in fact, and I want to come back to this in a second, you were talking mm-hmm. about how you designed your own job Rex or specs, however we want to call it. So let's come back to that because there's an important component in there. But when it comes to your purple squirrels, you know, they aren't naturally born on the planet with this insane marketing and financial acumen uh, bred in there. And we all know that the paths through the universities at the moment may or may not bring those things together. Like, how do you nurture and grow them so that they are able to really embrace the financial aspect of marketing?
1: You know, I think this is where going back to what I said before that I do teach once a semester. I love teaching and sharing information with people. And by the way, I love to learn from people too. But I think if you hire people, especially if not every single person is from the same industry, inevitably there is a part of what you're hiring for is potential. And one of the obligations I would say uh, of a leader or that I hold myself to is to unlock that potential. And to me, it's done in a few ways. One is it's a simple dedication of time, investing the time. I'm actually sitting with my team next week around the principles around sell-in versus sell-through. It's making sure that everybody has a good comprehension around the nomenclature that's used within a company. And truly, the witness test for this is can they explain it to their neighbor? And when you start to create an openness where people can ask questions and really absorb this information, then you start to see a lot more unlock. So one of the things that I do is every single person in our company right now, down to our customer service manager, could tell you what our gross margin goal is, could tell you our sell-in, sell-through goals. Those are... Key principles that I think are important for everybody in the business to know because you're owners and then you can make decisions accordingly.
0: Okay yeah very very smart and clearly <clears throat> you're you are a very good teacher and a very committed leader so I applaud you for that. I also applaud you for how you took ownership of each of your roles as you grew through the ranks and you mentioned you started as a digital marketer, can you talk a little bit about how you really took control of your own career, your own role, and created your own path, if you will?
1: It's a great question in the sense that I truly have never had a job description, and I, my plan is not to have one unless I have to craft it myself, and I don't say that out of rebellion. It's just to me that is a moment where there's unbridled opportunity, which I think is hugely exciting. So I started my career in the 90s, just to date myself, in digital, where this was to put in perspective when Friendster had just started. That's how far back it was. <laughs> if anyone knows, this was predates MySpace. So it already, nobody even knew what the titles could be or what the job descriptions were. So I was hired straight out of school to be a little bit of a developer, a project manager, a strategist, and a Photoshop person. So as you can imagine, that's a little bit of everything. And what I loved about it was the exposure and being able to learn. And if you fast forward to the next 10 years of my career, I ended up in some amazing global agencies, whether it's Digitas or Ogilvy, which taught me fundamentals about whether it's digital or consumer insights from the ground up every single channel. But what I continued to hone was this idea of being an entrepreneur, even in large multinational conglomerates. So as
0: you were going through this process and through your journey, you clearly absorbed and learned a lot of information by being exposed to so many different things. Are there a few experiences that you had along the way that were tipping points for you?
1: I think so. Going back to the 10 years I spent in the agency world, you learn from the ground up. It's extremely humbling. I also learned from some of the most creative minds I've ever in my life been exposed to. So a reverence for brands from a visual and tonal identity, which I've never experienced outside of an agency. I also learned very early on through the agency life about the importance of setting KPIs because when you think about it in an agency, you're billing by the hour. Every initiative is some type of deliverable to show that you're adding value. And I think that's a really good discipline to have instilled in you early on. Some other seminal moments for me, I worked on Clinique, which is the beloved brand within the portfolio. And that really showed me how you could work on the brand side and work for a company where they are so consumer and brand centric. It really showed me the lens to which you could apply, you know, whether it's product development or going to market, those tenants are carried through everything they do. And it's just part of their DNA. Finally, I would say very grateful. Rebecca Minkoff for me was an amazing experience because I got to work with a female founder. Rebecca is amazing. But I also finally got to bring together all of the omni channel experiences I had and bring them fully to fruition in one ecosystem. What I mean by that was it was the first mono brand retail store I ever launched. And so proud of how that blended the physical and digital experience into one, and also every other aspect from rebranding the company. And then finally, I would say KEDS to me was an extremely phenomenal experience, being able to come in and help a brand find and refine its DNA for a centennial year and beyond. It was an honor to be part of such an iconic American brand. And truthfully, it also gave me an opportunity over the course of three plus years to refine my skills in Asia, whether going into that market digitally or through dozens of mono brand stores there. I think that is really important to understand that global consumer as well. Yeah, I
0: couldn't agree more. I just recently had Cynthia Chen on the show who's the CEO of General Mills China, and she was talking about... We called our podcast China Fast uh, because of (laughs) how quickly things move over there. We're at a very different speed in, as she was saying, less actual tangible data resources. So talk, talk a little bit about that Asian experience for you because it was a different culture to embrace.
1: It is. I've worked for the past 15 years in Asia in different capacities, but I would say this was the most concentrated Cultural differences come down to a few different things. One is respecting and understanding them, understanding that, you know, especially in China, everything does move very quickly. But on the flip side, it is tremendously helpful to do key meetings in person, which means between all the different paperwork and what have you, it actually can't happen that quickly, which is ironic. And then I would say the other piece that's very interesting is reporting back, whether it's for dot-com sales or retail sales, it's a very different level of reporting than what you might be used to in the Americas or EMEA. So again, I think it's about agility. It's about adapting. And I can't emphasize enough, it is critical to meet in person to create clarity, especially when you're forging new business deals.
0: Good advice. And we're going to be coming up short on time here soon, but I want to ask you one more question about KEDS and then I want to dig into something new. At KEDS, you also mentioned like at this point, you were so strong and so ready. When you took the CMO role at KEDS, you actually, again, designed your own job description and you proposed. Yes. And
1: you did it in a big way. Can you talk about that? (laughs) One of the things that I do in my career is to come in and help transform brands. And it KEDS to me, coming in as a CMO during the centennial year was exciting enough. But in order to really deliver the growth that I like to deliver at brands, I do it in a way that still right now is considered slightly unconventional. What I mean by that is the CMO role in my mind has to be coupled with the P&L of e-commerce. Because that is, I would argue, for any company, even if it doesn't represent the largest revenue stream, between your e-commerce and your social media platform, that may be the first touch point that any global consumer has with your brand. And if your CMO doesn't have authority or ability to navigate and control that space, I don't know how your CMO then can be accountable for selling and sell through. So, I negotiated having the PL responsibility, and I would hit uh, 30% Kager year over year. And if this new business model that I was proposing didn't work, then we could part ways. So, minimal risk on their end, obviously, a decent amount of risk on my end, but it was really important to me to set the business up for success. Well, and that
0: you did, right? Because then you continued to it grow.
1: Did. I did with a great team, it wasn't me alone.
0: But it was really smart to, to pitch that and then earn your way uh, into then having much more flexibility and much more capability after that, right?
1: Yes, I think so. And I think going back to, as I mentioned earlier in my career in digital, one of the things that exposure to digital early on taught me is fluency with financial numbers and budgets and understanding how to hit KPIs or exceed them. And I think having PL response tied to marketing, which can be viewed sometimes as overhead, is critical in order to drive long-term growth. So, so let's talk about long-term growth. You have two little ones at home
0: who are on this long-term I do. growth path. <laughs> so <laughs> tell they me do. Us, yeah. to be a working mom. Tell me about your kids.
1: I have a nine-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. And one of the things that I can absolutely say is each day is unique whether that's at work, or at home, or when I'm traveling. And I really do find it helpful to view each day as a unique day, meaning you do the best you can in that day. And some days work will over-index and win out in time. And some days, due to family commitments, you make choices there. So I think the key is to understand that in the end, it all balances Similar to how I manage my teams, I'm very transparent with my kids. And one of the things I actually do is I do travel a fair amount for my role. Is Ever since even my son Humphrey was three, I would show him the presentations that I would go present when I was gone on business trips. And it's not that I expected questions on pivot tables or growth (laughs) capabilities in China from my three-year-old. But I wanted my children to understand why I wasn't present. And I wanted them to have a sense of pride and to understand what I was doing. And I will say it takes more time doing it that way, but it has paid off dividends. And now I can say also the questions that they will ask me now at nine and six are just astounding. You know, how did that deal go in the Middle East last week? Did you sign the contract? It's just, it's interesting how much they actually absorb but again it gives them a sense for i don't make it to most recitals and now they understand why and i think that helps yeah wow
0: i'm so i'm so happy you shared those examples you know i think a lot of working moms and you know i certainly don't want to claim to be an, an expert in this space at all but a lot of working moms have a sense of guilt and, and I think I've, I've spoken to a lot of really incredible women leaders, and it's hard. You've got to put the guilt down, but you just have to manage in the best you can. And, and I love the advice, take it day by day, because every day is going to be different.
1: I think so. I'm not going to say I don't have guilt. I absolutely do. And I did miss, by the way, a key uh, recorder concert last year. But you know what? You find out uh, different ways to make it up to them. And maybe that's doing a special activity or... And as I said, I think there's a level of forgiveness, whether it's with your children or your employees, explaining you're doing the best that you can. Yeah, agreed 100%. Okay, so shoot, we
0: are down to just a couple more questions. Okay, let's go to maternity leave legislation. You mentioned that to (laughs) me earlier. Tell me about that.
1: You know what? Um, I have obviously had two children, and for me, both experiences were not necessarily during maternity leave and returning from maternity leave. were both challenging, and what I would like to do for my daughter, Violet, is ensure that there's an environment or legislation set up where women are set up to succeed. And when you think about the U.S. and we're one of the preeminent industrial nations in the world, we actually have one of the worst maternity leave policies. And I think that immediately sets women up in a very challenging manner on if they want to have a family, how they do it, how they're going to succeed when they come back into the workforce, and frankly, how they're also going to be there for their teams or bosses or whomever. So I am very passionate in my next chapter beyond being hopefully a professor somewhere. I also want to work on legislation to make it an easier transition back that's more fruitful for everyone after maternity leave. Okay. So that is a very noble objective
0: and I am certain you will find your way there one day where you can have that impact. In the meantime, when you're not running all over the world for work and you're not running all over the playground with your kids or to soccer games or basketball games. It is just you time. Only Emily time. What is your favorite thing to do?
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know, one of my favorite things, I genuinely do this. I love to weight lift. Really? I really, yeah. I've been weightlifting for 22 years. Yeah. I love it. It is My form of, I have not been so successful in meditation. I've tried it for years. I have not (laughs) achieved anything. So if anyone has the answer, please find me, follow me, tell me what it is. So my form of meditation is actually weightlifting because if you are bench pressing, you can only be present in that moment. Otherwise, there are negative consequences. So I have found that that can be 50 minutes of partial meditation, if you will, that I can block everything out and just in many ways, relax or exert myself as well. Oh my gosh. I'm thoroughly impressed
0: and thoroughly (laughs) surprised and it's a really good point. Okay. I've never thought of it that way. Okay. So that was cool. It's the truth. You should try it. I could be (laughs) your spotter. Oh, would you? Because I'm going I'm to need a lot more help than just spotting it at this point. Um, I think it needs to start with, you know, getting on the treadmill. But I agree with you. This meditation, no. I can't do it to save my life. I have tried. I've gone so far. I've tried as...
1: everything. <laughs> I went to Kyoto, Japan and tried it within a Buddhist temple. And I You win. I've tried tea, classes, books, audio tapes, everything you can imagine. But I think you win on dedication for flights. <laughs>
0: Yes, I know. Unfortunately, I
1: failed, but it's okay. okay. I picked myself up again. And like
0: you, I will, I have found other things to help me accomplish those goals. So Emily, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. Thank
1: you so much. And Nadine, can I add one more thing too? Sure. One of my favorite quotes out there for future leaders, especially they're thinking about CMO to president move is, Focusing on this idea, the grass is greener where you water it.